0: Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series on careers in the atmospheric and related sciences. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Warner, and we'll be your hosts. Our podcast series will give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences.
1: We are excited to introduce today's guest, Colleen Iverson, a senior staff scientist in the Environmental Sciences Division and in the Climate Change Science Institute at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. Welcome, Colleen. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. Colleen, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in science?
2: Sure. Um, I think I would first talk about what sparked my interest in science, um, and that would be to go way back in time to when I was a kid. Um, both of my parents were geologists, so I spent a lot of my summer vacation sort of pulled over on the side of the road looking at road cuts and rock strata. Um, and so <laughs> I... Um, don't study rocks now for a living. I am interested more in biology. I saw too many rocks when I was a kid. Um, so I was always interested in the things that were living. Um, so what I did with rocks as a kid was turn them over um, to dig around in the soil and find worms um, to figure out where plants were going below ground. Um, and that kind of love for biology came with me through school. Um, so I got my undergraduate degree at Hope College in Michigan in biology, and then I got my master's degree in wetlands, wetland ecology at the University of Notre Dame, and then I kept going further south. So then I got my um, PhD at the University of Tennessee in ecology and evolutionary biology.
1: And tell us what was next after you would moved through those different degrees and honed in on your specific place within biology and then moving more specifically.
2: Yeah, so um, I did my um, dissertation work on um, a nearby forest. Um, where we were adding extra carbon dioxide to a stand of trees to see if the trees grew more when they had extra carbon dioxide to take up via photosynthesis. Um, And we found that the trees did grow more, but the most interesting part was instead of um, growing more wood, getting thicker, getting taller, the trees used the extra carbon they took up in photosynthesis to make more roots below ground. Um, And that's because since the trees had extra carbon, they needed extra water and extra nutrients to make more bits of tree. Um, so that's where I got interested in what was happening below ground. Um, and that was also where I found out um, what a national laboratory was. I had no idea um, before I moved to Tennessee that as a nation, we had national laboratories, um, let alone that there was one right next door to where I was doing my dissertation work. And so um, I met a, a scientist from the lab and that's how I ended up. He ended up getting approved to direct dissertation work. And I was his first graduate student and I did my PhD work at the National Laboratory.
0: So how did you find out that there were national labs? Did you just do some research or did somebody um, let you know about that?
2: Yeah, it was totally, um, it was a personal connection. So my, um, the person who I'd come to Tennessee to do dissertation work with um, was collaborating with a scientist at the National Laboratory. And I met him and we started talking and we found out that we had lots of interests um, that were overlapping in terms of nutrient cycling and ecosystem ecology. So understanding the interactions between the living and non-living parts um, of the ecosystem. And so he asked me to come do my dissertation work there um, to help him to ask new questions in a new way. So it was, it was totally an accident. And I find that um, often scientific research is sort of that way. It's all about who you get to meet um, and sort of the, the partnerships that you make in that way.
1: Were there any other opportunities that you think might have been advantageous as you were Moving into finding out about the National Laboratory, other things in your profession that you did, activities you took part in that uh, gave you any additional insights into what path you might take?
2: Yeah. So I think for me, um, I know I have a lot of sort of students and interns that I work with, and they're always worried that they have to have their whole career planned out. Um, And that's not how it was for me. And I think that's not how it is for a lot of my colleagues. Um, It's sort of always about the next thing, right? So you make a connection, um, you meet somebody Uh who's doing interesting things, um, you work with them for a while, then you make another connection and you do interesting things. And so that's kind of how it worked for me. Um, I was lucky in that I, when I finished my dissertation work, the experiment that I was working on, which was called um, the free air CO2 enrichment experiment. So a face experiment where you add extra carbon dioxide. Um, It was going to be wrapping up in the next year. Um, And so I was planning to go and do a postdoc elsewhere. Um, Usually that's what people do. They sort of do a dissertation and then they do a postdoc somewhere else and get a job somewhere else. Um, And my advisor said, if you stay, you can help us dig up the experiment. Um, and that was sort of really exciting for me because wow. it was a 12 year long experiment and we had to be very careful kind of about what, you know, what we could dig up and what we could be destructive in our sampling. And so um, I stayed because I wanted to dig giant soil pits is <laughs> how it worked. Um, and then um, the next year after that, in 2010, um, the Department of Energy was um, moving us towards the next series of experiments. And so I actually got hired as staff at the National Laboratory in 2010. So I didn't really go anywhere after my dissertation work. I just stayed at the National Lab.
0: Well, that's really lucky of you. You know, you you did work there and then you, you managed to get a full-time salaried position. Yeah. That was just like excellent timing.
2: It worked out very well. And I really, I really enjoy it. I think... When I first was starting my sort of graduate career, I wasn't really sure. I never thought really about being a professor. If I did think about being a professor, I thought about teaching at a small liberal arts school like where I went to college. Um, But I found that at a national laboratory where we don't have teaching duties, get to focus a lot on the science Um, which I really like. And I get to focus a lot on mentoring. So instead of sort of standing up in the front of the room and talking at people, um, I get to talk with students who are working with us and sort of hands on and helping us answer questions. And I really like that part of it. So speaking of mentoring,
0: um, did you also have some mentors that helped guide you through, you know, your career and where you are today?
2: Yeah, I think mentors are so important um, to anybody's success in in whatever they're doing. I was lucky in that my dissertation advisor was an excellent mentor. He had an open door policy. um, And I don't know if this affected you guys, but I have imposter syndrome. I, you know, I I worry that one of these days someone's going to show up to my office and say, you've done a really good job of fooling everybody that you know what you're talking about, (laughs) but now it's time for you to go home. (laughs) You're not fooling anyone anymore. I think it's a universal syndrome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I have that, and it's very helpful to have someone to talk things through with when you're when you're feeling like an imposter. I would say also I'm very lucky. um, The technician who worked with me during my dissertation, um, I'm now her supervisor, and she has been an amazing mentor to me. um, Sort of as I've gotten further along in my career, she's someone who can say, "Hey, you really need to pay attention to this thing." It's nice to have somebody who can tell you that. Um, and then I have a mentor in a project that I'm working on in the Arctic um, who's been an amazing ally and advocate for women in science, for um, scientists with families and a two-body problem, and also sort of for for changing the culture of science and making it um, inclusive and sort of making sure we listen to people that come after us. So I've had a lot of great ventures.
1: So... Switching gears just a little bit back to your life at the lab, we'd be interested to know what a typical day on the job would be like. And of course, we also should acknowledge that we're in the midst of uh, the global response to the coronavirus. And so a typical day is not a day that has happened recently. And so we'd also be interested if you could share maybe what adjustments your job has taken in the current moment So the two-part question for you.
2: So I would say um, I talk a lot through the Skype a Scientist program to students all over the country in classrooms. And they always ask me this too. What's a typical day for a scientist? And I always say my favorite thing about science is that there's no typical day so I get to do a lot of different things Um, some of those things are traveling to Alaska where we um, look at how permafrost thaw is affecting vegetation communities I travel to Minnesota where we have a warming by elevated carbon dioxide experiment in a bog Um, and I get to travel all over the world to Germany or Australia um, to meet with scientists who do similar things but in different places Um, I spend a lot of time on a computer writing papers or looking at data. Um, And I spend time in the laboratory too. So um, some of what I do is to sample um, vegetation and soils and bring it back to the laboratory where we would do chemical analyses, or I've spent a lot of time wearing jeweler's glasses with my head face down (laughs) and looking at a bowl of roots and figuring out who belongs to who and who their fungal partners are. Um, And so there's always something different to be done. And I think the nice thing about it is the common thread is through all of those different things I'm trying to answer a question Um, and the overarching question I have is how ecosystems are responding to a changing climate Um, but it's interesting to me that there are so many different parts of that um, that are important to do to answer that question um in terms of the second part of the two-part question is how are how things changed um so we're in the middle of this sort of global pandemic now um and to be safe um Ridge national laboratory where i work has suggested that most of us work from home um and so since monday of this week it's Thursday right now. I've been working in my home office um, brand new home office. I have a window which is amazing Um, (laughs) and I've been doing a lot of working on data and papers which is really nice for me. Um, I've able to do that because my husband Jim is a stay-at-home dad um, and is taking care of all of the child care duties of our two boys I have a nine-year-old and an almost three-year-old next week he'll be three um, and so that's keeping him very happy messy. early birthday oh yeah thank you we'll have to I think this is a good birthday because he's not expecting a big party <laughs> um, I think if we have a cake that'll be okay um, so we got lucky um, and I also spend a lot of time worrying about my people and so I have technicians and college graduates and undergraduate interns who all work with me um, and who usually do the hands-on work in the laboratory. And so making sure that they have things that are productive to do as we sort of weather this this current crisis um, is something that I've spent a lot of time worrying and thinking about. I think it's, uh, you know,
0: it's good that we have the technology that we have. I can't imagine if something like this happened, you know, 40 years ago. And, you know, it's nice to be able to FaceTime with friends or family just to kind of get that socialization and to be able to work from home and be able to, you know, remote desktop into your computer. It it just, I can't, I just can't imagine how difficult it would be if we didn't have these technologies in place to be able to get us
2: through this. I think about that a lot too. I I have to travel quite a lot for my job and it's hard, a little hard to be a mom and, and to do so much traveling. And I think I'm so grateful for FaceTime and Skype because when my kids were babies, it wasn't like they were going to pick up the phone and, and talk to me. And they still don't love it. You know, mommy, can I push the red button? Um, but at least I get to like see them, you know, <laughs> running around um, like I normally would even when I'm in you know China or Germany or, or Alaska.
0: So you mentioned you, you, you're doing a lot of paper writing. What are some of the journals that you submit papers to?
2: Yeah, so um, I'm actually an editor at a journal. It's called New Phytologist. Um, it's one of my favorite journals because it's not for profit. And so they put all of their profits back into hosting symposia for scientists um, and hosting workshops in that qu- and that sort of thing, which I really like. Um, so that's one of the main journals in our field where I, I think of it as like a virtual town square for people to come and talk about below ground things that I'm interested in, like roots and fungi and soils. Um, but other journals would be like Global Change Biology or the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. And then, of course, your, your Nature and Your Science family of journals um, and also sort of Plant and Soil and Ecosystems journals. You talked a lot
0: about doing field work. Is that what you like most about your job or is there something else that you like more?
2: Um, I do like the field work. Like I said, it's hard for me to be away, but I always, when I'm away, try to be grateful for the things that I have gotten to see by being a scientist that I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, getting to see musk oxen on the Arctic tundra has been pretty amazing. Just getting to see the tundra in general where the plants are sort of just hugging the ground and there are no trees. Um, getting that must most- have been amazing. Yeah, it's just, it's like a frozen lakeshore. You know, getting to travel the world, I appreciate those things too. But honestly, the part that I like most about my job is getting to tell a story. I like gathering together all the pieces of a puzzle to answer a question. And then I like to tell that story by writing about it or by talking about it. Um, That's my favorite thing is to sort of tell people about how cool the world is.
1: And uh, on the flip side, do you have any insight in what might be the most challenging part of your job?
2: Yeah, um, the most challenging part of my job, I think, is the further along you get, I think, people don't realize sort of all of the extra administrative duties that you have, you know, like people go into science because they get to be in the lab and they get to be in the field. Um, And then as you get further and further along, you're organizing and you're sort of running a small business. And there's a lot of email um, that comes with that. So I would Mm -hmm. say, you know, if, if at home for these next several weeks, if I could just turn off my email and never answer it again, it would be ideal.
1: (laughs) That makes sense.
0: (laughs) When you were in school, um, you know, you had to take all the typical math and science courses. But now that you're in the working world, are there other courses that you think would be useful that you'd advise students to take if they wanted to get a job in your field?
2: Absolutely. I would say the things we do most often, the further along you get to be, you know, a principal investigator, Um, are related to business. So I would say anything in sort of business or management, any classes like that would be super useful. Um, And the other thing I would say is anything related to communication um, so I don't know if your audience would know who Alan Alda is. He was Hawkeye on MASH a long time ago. Yep. Um, but after he finished that, he went around the country interviewing scientists about what they do. And he wrote a book called, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? After, <laughs> after that decade. Um, and now he runs a school for science communication. Um, and so they came to Oak Ridge and they, and they took their class and they use improv. Have, um, to help scientists to be more spontaneous, to listen to their audience, to better communicate what they do. And that has been so helpful, both in talking to other scientists, but also talking to sort of the next generation of scientists and the public about what I do. So anything related to communication, including writing and public speaking.
0: I had no idea that Alan Alda had done that. And I'm old enough to know who Alan Alda (laughs) is. I'm not sure about some of these other people on the call, but
2: (laughs) I I always feel badly when I ask if people know who he is and I just get blank stares.
1: (laughs) Makes me feel old. (laughs) Well, the story still resonates nonetheless.
0: (laughs) Does your job allow for a good work life balance? I know you said you had to travel a lot, but is that, um, you know, not that often enough that it would be a problem?
2: Um, I think that's always a hard question. Um, So I do travel a lot. I think I added it up one year and it was 75 days that I was gone. Um, So it's quite a lot of time away from my family. And I think the work-life balance question is a hard one because no, it is hard to have a good work-life balance being a scientist, but that doesn't mean you can't, you just have to work at it. And so I recently, several years ago, had a friend and a colleague who passed away from ALS and at his funeral, his daughter stood up and said, it's really been lovely of all of you to tell me how famous my dad was and what a great scientist he was. But when he came home, he was on our time. We didn't know he was a famous scientist. We just knew he was dad. And that really resonated with me. And I try very hard when I come home at the end of the day, which now is walking down the stairs. Um, I try. Very very hard to be on my family's time and I try very hard to make it count and that's how I've made it work by being home when I'm home and even when I have to be away trying to stay in contact and I would say it's not just the travel that makes it difficult Um, there are expectations um, within just the sciences in general that might be different for women versus men and having advocates and allies that will help to try to shape and change that culture from the top has been something that's been very important for me as well.
0: So what would you say if you could have done anything differently in your career, what would it be?
2: Yeah, I um, I, I feel like that implies that I had a plan <laughs> for my career, which, <laughs> I, really did, which I really didn't. I'm um, <laughs> I, I was thinking about this question and I'm not sure If I would have done anything differently, I can think of a lot of things that I would have told my younger self um, to think more about. Um, And that's things like I'm taking a lot of leadership classes now and just thinking about how everyone has a different communication style and understanding where they're coming from can really help you to interact with them. I would tell myself to think more about that because, you know, science is really about building relationships and better science gets done in teams. And so thinking about what I would want my team to look like, I think is something that I would be more proactive about.
0: Yeah. You know, I find that too, that there are so many different learners, you know, there's visual learners, there are people who like to just read to get things done and to find out how to do something. And you really have to take that into consideration. Um, I think a lot of us find that in our, our own jobs where just because we learn a certain way doesn't mean everyone can learn that way as well, which makes it a little challenging when you're trying to put things together for training materials. Um, but I, I think that's definitely good advice to, to be able to be a better communicator.
2: I think the other thing that I always try to tell, you know, even kindergartners or elementary school kids when I talk to them is I used to worry that all of the questions would be taken by the time I got to do science, you know, that that everyone would have already answered them and that we should just go home. Um, And I found that to be the opposite that sort of when you answer one question, there's always a new question that arises from the answer. Um, And so you could spend your whole life, your whole career asking and answering questions um, without running out of things to think about.
1: What sort of professional development opportunities do you pursue, Colleen, to uh, keep current with the science, the knowledge, your
2: So I mentioned that I'm an editor for the journal New Phytologist, and that really helps me to stay a part of the scientific discourse. Um, It's nice to have an excuse to keep up with the literature and also to sort of um, have a a small hand in, in shaping the way that a story is told. A lot of my professional development is related to the way I communicate my science, and that's to you, you know, children, to other scientists and to the public. And I mentioned that I'm doing a lot of leadership training now and thinking about how to sort of know the way that I interact with the world so that I can better understand the way that other people interact with the world and thinking about leading teams to do the next set of experiments.
0: If you were hiring someone in your department, what would you look for in a resume? Do you have any advice for um, students or early career professionals who are looking to get into that field?
2: Yeah. So I would say the first two things that I think about when I'm hiring someone is if they're a good team player and a good communicator. Um, And so you might notice that sort of their scientific skill set isn't necessarily at the top of my list. And that's because, you know, the people that we have applying for jobs, including internships here at the National Lab are are amazing scientists already. Um, But we want people who can also be amazing collaborators. Um, who are eager and motivated to learn, who ask questions, who want to work together to solve problems. Because, you know, like climate change, a lot of the problems that we have now are really interdisciplinary in nature. And it takes a lot of different people to think about ways to solve those problems. And so I would rather have someone who is an excellent scientist, but also an excellent team player come and work with us. So
0: if somebody was coming out of school or they're in school, in order to get those skills, would you say that you look for people who have had internships or have done other extracurricular type activities where they've been engaged in the community and things like that?
2: I think that's... Helpful. Although I would say, you know, um, the Department of Energy, who funds a lot of the work we do at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, um, they have intern programs during the summer where they will fund students to come and work with us. And then we also fund students from our research programs. And I would say I'm happy to teach a student in particular students, um, the scientific skills they need to do the kind of science I do. What I would rather have is someone who comes with a sort of natural curiosity about the world around us, who's motivated to show up and learn, um, and who's really interested in the big picture of what we're studying. Other internships are a bonus because that means that they would feel more comfortable coming into sort of the professional environment, but they're not required. In fact, some of the interns that we have had in the program are first-generation college students or come from community colleges. And so that's not something that would be a deal breaker for me if they didn't have previous internship experience. Working in the broader community, that's also something that I appreciate, but that's not a deal breaker either. I, I wanna be fair about sort of who gets to do science. And there's students from some backgrounds that have to have a job. So they don't have time to do sort of community service or, or sorts of extracurricular activities. And so really, it's about that they know what they want to do and where they want to be. And to me, that that sort of comes across when you talk to them.
0: So yeah, I'm guessing that the interview process is really important. And that's how you can determine those things.
2: It's funny. It's so hard because you just sometimes you just have one phone call <laughs> with someone, you know, oh, right. to figure out how they're a good fit or not. Especially for the internship program um, for students, like postdocs and staff are kind of another thing altogether, right? They would come and give a talk about their science, and we would get to meet them and hang out. Um, but for students, sometimes it's just a phone call, and so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I often think where it doesn't work can be as valuable for them as where it does. You know, I think that's the nice thing about doing an internship before you might decide to go to graduate school. You might come and find, you don't really want to do research for a living. You don't want to, you know, go on to graduate school. You don't want to write papers. You just want to do the science. And so that's good to know. And there are opportunities to do science everywhere without a graduate degree.
1: That's a great insight. Thank you so much. Um, Colleen, we always ask our guests one last fun question at the end of each podcast, and I had heard through the grapevine that you have an all-time favorite book that you might want to tell us about.
2: This is a really hard question (laughs) to answer because um, I like to read, I'm a really fast reader, and I usually will read like a book before I go to bed at night, like I'll read a book. Um, And I like to read- um, One whole book. One whole book. (laughs) Wow. I know. Um, And I like to read fiction. I feel like I do a lot of nonfiction reading during the day and the news is very real lately. And so I want to escape a little bit. Um, So ever since I was little, I've always really liked science fiction. Novels. Robert Heinlein was my favorite author when I was a kid. I'm sort of thinking about what my all-time favorite book was pretty tricky since I've read a lot of them. Um, but I thought one of the ones that really impressed me when I was a kid reading it was a book called Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Sure. Yeah. Have you guys read that one? I have. Yeah. I have not. Um, it's about a young boy, basically um, young children who end up going to battle school uh, to help save the world from an alien invasion. Um, and I think the reason that it made such a big impact on me is because it was the first time I thought about how adults don't really have the answers to all the questions um, and that kids can think about things in new ways. Um in new important ways like the enemy's gate is down um and so i think just thinking about how i could make an impact in the future um and that was important to me i think i have not read it since i've had children of my own and i think it would be pretty devastating now to think about the situations that those kids were put in um but i do remember it making a big impact when i was that age I'm gonna to have to put that
0: one on my list. I, I've heard of it, and they've probably made a movie out of it. It is a movie. At, I have not. Point.
2: I haven't watched the movie. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's probably nowhere near as good as the book. It, they
2: never are. That's usually what happens. Yeah.
1: I also noticed while perusing your website that uh-huh. you had a Tolkien quote. Uh, pretty prominently displayed at the bottom, and I—that stuck out to me. I mean, it was the biggest font on the page after uh, working at the interface between roots and soil. And I was—I was—it's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, and I was just wondering how that came to you, and what mm-hmm. made you decide to place it right there on your homepage. Yeah, and I loved seeing that literary touch amongst <laughs> um, your other. Information.
2: I do love Tolkien. I love Lord of the Rings. I love the adventure of it um, and the sort of the camaraderie and the teamwork of it too. Um, and I'd read them a long time ago before I even started studying plant roots or what was happening below ground. Um, and one of my students one day gave me this in a card to say thank you for sort of teaching her about ecosystem ecology in the below ground world. And I had never thought of it in this slide. I had only ever thought of it as like a, you know, this is about strider and the next king and that kind of thing. Um, But the quote is all that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. Um, And I liked the deep roots part of it. So it's on my webpage.
1: Some biology hidden amongst fantasy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I um, am famous for seeing roots or root like things everywhere. I look. So um, I have a friend who studies um, neurons in the brain and she sent me a photograph of them because I said they looked like roots, so. Oh, that's awesome.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks so much for joining us, Colleen, and sharing your work experiences with us.
2: Thanks for the opportunity. It was really fun to talk with you. Well, that's our show for today.
0: Please join us next time, rain or shine.